Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. This episode is brought to you by Riverside.fm, and quite literally because it's what I use to record both my podcasts, Everything is Marketing, and Default Alive. But I was using Riverside long before they became a sponsor. I used to use Zoom until someone interviewed me using Riverside, and I just knew that I had to make the switch. Personally, I love it because they take local recordings on each side, which gives you a reliable connection, and the highest quality audio and video tracks. Separate HD recordings, an iOS app, automatic transcriptions, it's made specifically for podcasters. People like Guy Raz from How I Built This, Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers, and even Hillary Clinton uses it, if you can believe it. Check them out and all the other features they have at riverside.fm. One more time, that's riverside.fm. On the show today is Amanda Natividad. Amanda is the marketing architect at SparkToro and previously the head of marketing at Growth Machine. I wanted to bring her on because Amanda is a prolific marketer with experience in content marketing across B2C brands like Fitbit and Liftopia, as well as B2B with Growth Machine and their client base. She's also amassed a Twitter following over 36,000, and she's an expert in all things digital PR and content strategy. So you'll hear about the idea of permissionless co-marketing, product-led content, and how Sparktora is leveraging live office hours to move the needle on product adoption and retention. So Amanda, to start out, Growing up, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? No. Um, growing up, I always thought I was going to be a magazine editor. Well, <laughs> I thought I was going to be either an opera singer or a magazine editor. It turns out I can't sing at all. I can't even <laughs> sing Happy Birthday. So that was out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, in wanting to be a magazine editor, um, I, you know, did things along the way throughout my childhood that kind of led up to, that kind of led to my path in journalism. So hmm. um, in middle school, I think I might have had the first newsletter. Um, in middle wow. school, I had, you know, my AOL account. I subscribed all my, fr- all my classmates to my weekly newsletter. And it was, <laughs> it was a fake, it was about a, it was, it was a newsletter of updates about a fake band um, hmm. that didn't exist. But it was an excuse really to send. <laughs> but it was an excuse to send memes. So okay. it was. <laughs> it was like, oh, the band just took new headshots, and then it would be a couple of crazy photos of mm. that were memes back then, or you know, like the new single just dropped, and it was a funny wave file of some <laughs> kind of audio with a cartoon character. It was so ridiculous. That's pretty funny, actually. It was fun. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. Um, in high school, I was in the in the. Uh, yearbook club or yearbook class so that's where I got to learn um you know initial like page layout stuff like I learned Adobe InDesign uh learned journalism best practices and so by the time I got to college um you know I was pretty set on majoring in communication studies um where you know I uh increased my media literacy did learn a little bit of sociology communications and then got into tech journalism Mm -hmm. um it was Sort of just, I never intended to be a marketer. It was just something I kind of stumbled upon when I was trying to pivot from journalism to food writing and realized, oh, there's a thing called content marketing and I can probably do that. So that was kind of just how I got into marketing. Wow. Well, first of all, I feel like you should uh, include like another 
little segment of your the menu newsletter now that's like a throwback to uh <laughs> that made up band and that's your excuse to share memes i would love to see that oh that's um, a good idea <laughs> that's yeah that's pretty funny I, I love that story um the the, the journal, journalism to marketing sort of like pivot and journey for a lot of people is always interesting to me because it's sort of like the og marketing as we know it today right it was like it's always been marketing and like a forum marketing or some sort of uh, like channel, right? As we sort of like call it in marketing is that's one avenue you can take is going the journalism route or, or basically using journalists for your advantage, right? And getting PR placements, things like that. So it's a bit full circle right now being at SparkToro and being a lot of like digital PR and sort of modern PR. What does it look like to, to get this? Um, but tell me a little bit more about like the, the food writing and content marketing. Um, how'd you actually make that transition? And uh, did you end up writing about food or was that sort of just like the foray that got you into this world of content marketing as a whole? Yeah, so um, I was doing tech journalism for a couple of years, um, had a sort of quarter life crisis, decided I wanted to work in food. Um, and to do that, I was like, oh, I should, I need to develop some kind of clout or expertise in food. So I went to culinary school hmm. um, where it was, it was only for one year, but uh, and I was able to do it while I worked work while I worked full time. Really? So I was doing that and thought like, great, I'm going to be a food writer. This is this is it. After this, I'm going to go work at the L.A. Times or the New York Times. <laughs> That's the food writing career. And I didn't do any research. I don't know why. I just didn't. I just thought it would all work out. <laughs> so um, in finishing up culinary school, I did end up um, working at the L.A. Times uh, very briefly, where I worked in the test kitchen and got to do some writing for uh, the, the food section. And I thought, like, this could be it. Um, but they weren't hiring for full-time people after mm. that. And then when I was really, like, truly looking for a food writing job, I, I realized there were so few available. Like, there were, like, 10 food writing jobs in the U.S. and they're all taken. Oh, wow. So yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I should have thought this through harder. <laughs> um but along the way, I was picking up like random freelance work, um, helping restaurants and, and and really small startups do some of their social media marketing. So I was doing that and kind of, so um, unknowingly, really um, developing you know some some level of marketing proficiency. Um, and as I as I realized there were not a lot of food writing jobs, I started to research food startups because I you know with my tech background, I was like, oh, I, I, this is kind of, this is the space I can easily research. So once I did that, I started to, I, I started making a list of all the food, all the food startups that were, that had gotten funding in the past, like two years. Um, I started researching each one, looking at like whatever jobs they had open. And then also just thinking about like, okay, even if they're not hiring, what could I do maybe that they're not already doing or that they don't all that or that they don't seem to have resourcing for um, and one of those companies was Naturebox, the subscription snack company i sent them a cold email and it was like you know it was basically like hey i don't have any marketing experience here's my here's the experience i do have um i can write i can do social media um if you think there might be um uh, opportunity for someone with my skill set you know let's talk um and they ended up responding, and they were super nice. And they were like, "Oh, we know we're not hiring right now, but let's stay in touch." Um, and then we did. And then a couple months later, they actually did hire, and they were like, "Cool, you should join." And that was wow. that was really just how I got into that. Um, and then from there, it became, 
oh, now I got to learn about SEO. I got to learn how to do content marketing. And at the time, I mean, content marketing was still relatively new. Um, And I think of various marketing disciplines, it is one of the newer ones. Um, And at the time, you know, there were not a ton of gold standards of really, truly great content. right, I think at, at the time, it was still a lot of like, um, how do you win at SEO? Like, yeah, join some like link directories. And, yeah. yeah, it was it was yeah. still kind of in that phase. But there were there were a few like emerging startups or just a few gold standards that people were starting to realize like, oh, content's actually a good thing. And like one of those was like, uh, the Kiss Metrics blog. Mm. Right? Like years, you know, years and years ago, it was known for just being a truly great uh, content or a truly great resource for marketers. So then I started to think about like, oh, can I do that, but for snacks or for food? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was kind of, I think, a meandering answer, but <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that totally answers it. Um, a little bit of a hypo- hypothetical for you, but do you think that if you knew what you know now, going back to that, like, I want to be a food writer sort of uh, phase or, or pursuit, this whole world now of like being a creator and sort of going independent and uh we have the, what's called the great quitting or the great um the great resignation i think yeah the great resignation yeah. that's, that's what it is quitting i don't know where that came from <laughs> um but knowing what you know now you know do you think you would have maybe pursued like a uh, sort of like life or career on your own as a creator sort of doing like food writing food food blogging um or something in that realm maybe i think Years and I mean today no because it would be really hard to win at SEO with a food blog today. But back then probably I think I would have, um, I would have learned um, SEO or SEO best practices a lot sooner, and I would have tried to create a blog or website that optimized for that. Um, I think I would have done that, and I would have tried harder to. Um, um, to find ways to make money online, like through kind of the independent solo way. Um, I did though create uh, an iPad cookbook and it was really? free. Wow. Yeah. And that was sort of just like to see if I could do it. Uh, like, like, can I make an iBook? Like maybe. Um, so I think I would have I gone further down that path and made some of those things and tried to make some money off of it. Well, you created an iPad cookbook, so I think that you were a creator. You just didn't know it. <laughs> I just didn't, didn't know it. I should have right. just made another newsletter about memes. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to your roots. Um, so I know you've worked at places like uh, um, Growth Machine, where we first got connected, uh, TopTel, a few other stops along the way. I was wondering, we don't have to like go into, de- into detail about any of those in particular, but just if you had like a lesson from each one of those that you could kind of distill down to like what you took away from that experience or a valuable thing that you learned or sort of like how it helped you evolve your own marketing chops. Um, what would that be for each one of those? Oh yeah. So I'll start from the, from, from the beginning. So in journalism, I worked at paidcontent.org um, and then later at gigaohm.com by way, by way of acquisition. Um, and that was really where I learned uh, as a foundational overview, how startups worked, you know, like how people kind of, how they kind of got funding. Um, I learned some, um, I, I learned how to do event marketing uh, because a lot of paid content, um, kind of bread and butter was through events. We had some of the, the best known industry events where um, people like, you know, like Jeff Weiner, right, who's 
uh, who had just who he has just stepped down as uh, CEO of LinkedIn. But like, he spoke at some of our events where at the time, you know, he was a VP, but like still kind of an up and coming star. So we had a lot of people like that at these events. So that was kind of where I first learned what an interesting or effective event might look like. Mm. Um, so that was that. Um, my first true like marketing, um, you know, role was at NatureBox and highly recommend, you know, getting early startup experience, right? I think I was, you know, employee number like 15 or 17 to join. So still really lean marketing team. Um, and then because we were all, you know, we were all so young and still learning the ropes of startup life and marketing, we all got to do a bunch of different things. Um, so that was where I learned some first principles to performance marketing, right? And we were, um, and at NatureBox, we were one of the, I think we were one of the first startups to do podcast advertising. Like <laughs> it was us and Sherry's Berries. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I don't even remember that. Um, yeah. But yeah, and that was... Uh, Oh, I have kind of a fun story there. Let me just yeah. kind of segue to that. Um, so we had, you know, had some great success with doing sponsorships for like Bill Burr's show, Mark Marin's WTF, and Jake and Amir's podcast. Um, and we were getting really like, ridiculously low CPAs, like way less than $10, probably less than $5. It was crazy. And it was also in the early days of podcast sponsorships where there wasn't a ton of broader data where like where these creators could then could then say like oh we're charging 30k an episode because they didn't right. know either yeah. they were like three thousand dollars sounds reasonable what do you yeah. think and we were Free like money. cool <laughs> yeah we were like okay like we, we like, no, like none of us knew what we were doing um and we were slowly getting proficiency there and then there was one um one podcast where they wanted us to pay pay everything up front for the entire season um, where I think it was, it was going to cost like, like, like way, way north of a hundred K. Um, which, and it was like, that's it. That's the offer. Like you will, you will be the only sponsor. Um, mm. but this is how much it costs. And we were like, well, how do we know it's going to, it's going to work? And they're like, we don't because the show hasn't come out yet, but that's, that's just how this works. So, mm. you know, I think based on the data that we had, we decided to pass on it. And then that podcast was Serial. <laughs> Oh my gosh! No way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could have oh. we could have been Mailchimp. <laughs> oh man, yeah, right, right. Yeah, that was one of the big things out of it. That's crazy. Yeah. I was actually yeah. I was going to guess that it was um, the Tim Ferriss show because I was just listening to Tim Ferriss give uh, advice to I think it's Chris Hutchins. I want to say he has a new mm -hmm. podcast called All the Hacks. I might have gotten his last oh, name uh -huh. wrong, but it's Chris something. And um, and Tim was talking about how he has decided. I think maybe like from like two or three years ago, I want to say, he decided like to be very strict with the sponsors. He's like, everyone is upfront, paid in advance, your commitment at these rates. And like, that's it, take it or leave it. Because it was like too much time to try to go back and forth and like customize it for each you know sponsor. Cause he has like five to seven, like in total. And then like some of those like rotate through or whatever it was. So when you said like upfront, you know, a large amount, I was like, oh my gosh, is it Tim Ferriss? Because he was just talking about this. Oh, that would have been cool. I mean, and, and I think that was, huge, right? yeah. yeah, it would have been huge. And I think that was, you know, around the time that he was probably starting out with his show. So that could have applied. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he learned that from um, the serial people. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Tim was a very smart guy. He probably <laughs> did some digging and found that out. Oh, totally. 
Um, okay, so Nature Box, I learned some, you know, first principles for performance marketing. Um, and then from there, I got into B2B marketing over at Fitbit. Um, and that was, that was where I think, that was where I really refined um, the thought leadership sort of approach to content because, you know, Fitbit was already a known and beloved consumer brand. So for us as a B2B company, we weren't so much, the, the initial priorities were not about SEO. We were getting so much organic inbound that the needs that we had were more so around why should we do a corporate wellness program with you? How does this work? Uh, what does it mean to put employees in step challenges? So we, it was about creating a lot of content for that, which didn't all didn't have a ton of search volume. So mm. it was really just educational content, thought leadership content, meaning like content for that would be maybe bylined by our executives or would serve as talking points for them to speak at industry conferences. Um, so that was where I learned that. And then also just sort of bridging that gap between content and events. So that was also where my, my prior journalism experience helped. Um, mm. But this was where I refined it, where, you know, I was able to figure out, you know, what some of the emerging conversations should be in the corporate wellness space, finding the speakers to support that message, and then, you know, working with my team on creating effective events. Hmm. Um, so that's what I learned C there. Could I, could I ask about that for a second? I'm, yeah. I'm kind of, um, I'm down this rabbit hole right now of like, how do you build up the personal brands of leadership team members, the founder, um, for the purpose of like the marketing engine as a whole, right? Like how do you like mm -hmm. plug in, Oh, let's get like the thoughts of this executive or like this person, or let's, you know, extract some like subject matter expertise from them. And then like, let's put it under their penmanship and then let's, you know, leverage that for, you know, conference talks or panels or podcast interviews or whatever it is, right. That, that industry sort of, um, gives way to, uh, what, what was that like to actually like make that work as sort of like a strategy, if you will, we're like, okay, this is a core part of what we do is we talk with executives and then we sort of help them publish, you know, their, their thoughts. Right. And like, yeah. I don't know, it feels a little bit like hurting cats to me and also like early to be doing something like that. Um, but just curious if you have any more thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, I think when it comes down to it, that lead, that executive leader, whoever that is, they need to do at least part of it, right? Like you could hire ghostwriters and I think that's fine. Um, but if, if that executive is not the one replying to the tweets or replying to the LinkedIn posts, it just isn't going to work. And, mm. and I think that is something that um, followers or fans pick up on right away. Maybe they won't, maybe they won't know outwardly like to say it, right? But they know it somewhere deep inside their, their brain. So like, oh, this isn't, they're just posting shit. Like they're not mm. really the ones who are, uh, they don't have skin in the game. They're just doing this because they have to. Yeah. Um, so I think in terms of doing it effectively, and I think, and I do think there's a way you can work with ghostwriters effectively. It's, I think, getting up, getting up front, like, what they think strategically like what are their philosophical tenets to the industry that you work in to the niche at hand um what are the big ideas that they care about or the big visions that they have um and this could i think this could be covered in you know um a, a solid like kind of brainstorming kind of strategy meeting 
or you understand philosophically where they stand on things. Um, and then from there, finding the right ghostwriters, whether it's yourself or hiring a ghostwriter, um, to do a lot of the initial, um, the, the initial content. And I would start with like, um, I think this is like a, a pillar content strategy. I don't, I don't actually know all the proper content marketing <laughs> keywords. Who or knows like these the days? There's so many different yeah, like so variations. Or, yeah. But like, but like having like maybe even just one to two pieces per quarter that are just sort of like the overall theme or the big idea. And then from there, you can kind of chunk it out and create smaller bite-sized pieces. Um, and I think a lot of, there are probably a lot of executives who already do this and we just don't know it, right? Mm. I mean, I think if you, I think if you look at a lot of um, VCs who have a good content strategy, they have a huge editorial team behind that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would kind of look at those and I would, and I, you know, and I would wonder like um, in those companies, how, how are the, the thought leadership VCs using the content that comes from their VC firm? Mm -hmm. Like, does one sort of lead the other? Like, I would be curious and I haven't, I haven't um, dug deeper into this personally, but like using A16Z as an example, I mean... Andrew Chen posts a lot. He has a lot of content. He writes a lot. Uh, I, I, I imagine he does it all himself. But I would be curious to see, like, what does the A16Z editorial team do with it? Like, do they create content derivative from his ideas? Hmm. Or do they come to him with initial thoughts and then he takes that and then turns hmm. it into his own thing? So I'd be curious about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Kind of like a symbiotic relationship. It could go either way. Yeah. Um, depends on the person. Andrew's definitely like... I mean, he's definitely has like that writing muscle, right? He has his mm -hmm. new book, The Cold Start, and he's been yeah. tweeting and writing forever. But, but like you said, maybe they sort of come to him and like give him all these like starting points, or even like maybe just help on like the editing side of things, where he like gives them these rough ideas, and then they're like, "Cool, we'll take it from here," and then <laughs> you'll see the finished product later. Yeah, and I would also just add, uh, maybe as a final thought to this, is I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with having a ghostwriter, right? I mean. Because that, that can be a number of different relationships. I mean, sure, it, would it suck if you were if you were an executive who said to some ghostwriter, hey, can you just write some stuff and then we'll put my name on it? Like, great, yeah, you right. decide. That's never going to work. But if you, are, if you are someone who is saying, like, I have these thoughts about content marketing and what the future should be like um, and, how, and how teams can scale from here, overall, here are my ideas. And then having a ghostwriter help you kind of enhance that content. I think that's a great kind of relationship to have. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I mean, that, that feels mm -hmm. like just a good writer. <laughs> that's what yeah. a good writer does. <laughs> they get the good content and then they make, they produce something good out of that, right? So. Yeah. Um, all right, and then a couple more things here. So yeah. after Fitbit, uh, one of my, my the next full-time role that I had was at a ski lift ticket company called Liftopia. Mm. And this was, and Liftopia was basically like the Expedia of lift tickets. Well, I would help you get discount pricing of any kind of resort you wanted to. And I think what was interesting here was learning about the very different um, and un unintuitive or counterintuitive behaviors of ski lift ticket buyers. Hmm. So a lot of the traditional sort of um, Facebook ad tactics or Google search ad tactics didn't apply to this. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you live in New York 
and you are considering going skiing for the like, for the upcoming weekend, you wouldn't be searching for lift tickets based on your state. You wouldn't be looking at New York, like New York ski resorts, right? And if you don't live on the East Coast, you'd be like, oh, really? I don't know. Like I would, you would think you'd search within your state, but because of the geography of um, of the Northeast, I'll just say most broadly. Um, you mm-hmm. could live in New York and maybe the best ski resorts are located in Pennsylvania. So you can't really do the targeting based on like interstate. Right. Yeah. You have to like, you have to look at things like weather patterns, um, the broader geography. Um, and then, and then based on that, you have to pull out the key factors that would make a given ski resort appealing. So like, depending on the type of snow that fell, you might not be able to say, hey, fresh snow on Stratton Mountain, like you should go. Depending oh, on the type right. of snow, you it might be too icy or something like that where like people people who are experienced skiers might be like, oh, I'm not going to go there this weekend. It's a terrible idea. So there was a lot of having to really truly understand weather conditions, snowfall, um, and consumer behaviors. So that was, mm. that was an interesting challenge, an interesting puzzle to solve. Um, and then finally, you know, at Growth Machine, um, this is, I mean, I would refer to it as a boutique SEO and content agency. Um, and when I was there, I, uh, I didn't really have, I didn't have a marketing team, right? I was the marketing person. And a lot of it there was focused on building a personal brand because um, the agency was founded by Nat Eliason, who has his own audience. So understandably and rightfully, Nat was the face of the brand. And, and as he was moving towards stepping away and, you know, doing his own thing or something else, we were thinking about, well, how can we kind of have other faces of the brand that are not just Nat? Um, and how can we make this more economical? How does this kind of feed into our existing content um, and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, amazing lessons. Um, I want to dig into some of the more topical sort of like, you know, what is Amanda's subject matter expertise and the things that she cares about and experiencing and plus some fun stories. <clears throat> and I thought maybe we could, we could start with uh, product led content, which I feel like I've heard a couple of times, but as you know, you were telling me a little bit more about it in our sort of like prep beforehand. Um, and I was just like sort of mulling over it and thinking about it. It's like, this is a really interesting kind of category or maybe just like way to think about content marketing and, and maybe even like, puts words is something that I've been trying to, uh, to verbalize for a while, which is like, how do you create content that is like derivative of the product? Not just, I don't know. Cause a lot of content marketing, you could tell me, maybe I'm speaking for you, but a lot of content is like very, um, uh, customer centric first. And then it's like, what are people searching for? What do they care about? What topics, but product led content kind of like flips that a little bit. And it's like, well, what content can we create around our product that supports all the use cases or all the things you can do and the features. But how do you think about product-led content? Yeah. So, I mean, it's what's it's it's sort of once you think about product-led content, which is creating content that is in service to the users of your product. Hmm. It's easy to kind of it's easier to kind of zoom out and look at other examples of that. So, I think in in general and the in the, you know, in the B2B or in the SaaS, we'll just say SaaS because it can it can be B2C. In the SaaS industry, Zapier is an excellent example of this, right? Because they cover all the bases of like SEO-driven content, product-led content. 
you know, we're like now if you are looking up anything related to productivity and automation, it's all of Zapier's content that comes up. So they definitely have it covered on the search volume front. But then, you know, as you as you read through their blog, they have they really truly weave in how you would use Zapier to do the thing. So maybe they'll have a blog post on, you know, optimizing your calendar for the day. And then throughout, they'll have ways to ways to do that using Zapier. And it works very seamlessly because all you have to do is click and then you go straight to the help article and you can click on like copy zap or whatever that is. So it works mm -hmm. very elegantly. Now, at SparkToro, the way that we the way that we do content, and I'm, you know, and I know you know this because you've, you've you've spoken with Rand. Rand doesn't think about SEO-driven content for what we do at SparkToro, and the biggest reason for that is we th we are solving a problem for marketers or for founders that they don't have shared terminology for, right? So we are helping people do audience research. Audience research has very low search volume. Mm -hmm. We help people find their audience's sources of influence. Again, not really a search term, but I think as I explain that, that makes sense as you're thinking through like, yeah, sources of influence. Like I want to know, you know, of my customers, like who listens to what podcast or like which podcast they listen to, which websites they frequent, the social accounts they follow. Again, not a lot of search volume for for those things or those pain points, but they are very real pain points. So a lot of what we do is focused on how we would do a certain marketing strategy or marketing tactic using the tools of SparkToro to make that process more efficient. Hmm. Um, and so in the end, what we hope to have, right, is to have this nice library of content for which it's like, hey, here's how to do these cool marketing things in a, on a more in a, in a more strategic or efficient way Oh, and by the way, happens to be easier if you use SparkToro for this. Um, the best example I can kind of take you through from like soup to nuts is our cold outreach content. So a couple months ago, um, we, we hosted a SparkToro office hours. So our webinar series, uh, a webinar about cold outreach. I did like a, you know, 30 minute presentation on how to do cold outreach from the moment that you start creating your outreach list to the moment that you were actually writing and sending these messages. Um, I also created a, I also wrote a Twitter thread on this that happened to go viral. Um, so, and they got to plug the, up this particular webinar. So that was kind of nice. And then after the webinar, you know, where we had a lot of great audience Q and A, and I was able to kind of um, take that into consideration and distill that into further content. Um, I was able to create a really long blog post that sort of became like, here's the SparkToro guide to doing cold outreach. And it's like, mm. it might be like a 2000 word blog post, but it's, it, it again, walks you through how to do it, how you might do it without using SparkToro, right? Like maybe you would make your own Twitter lists and create, uh, and then collate a bunch of people in your given niche, follow them, all that stuff. Um, and you can do that, right? And, or you can also use SparkToro to find the related accounts that are most relevant to your niche. Um, so that way in the end, anyone reading the, anyone reading this blog post would get value out of it, whether or not you happen to be a SparkToro user. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of thing that I aspire to do more of, um, and to build up like a healthy library of. Do you think that, um, freemium sort of like has to be a part of the equation when you're thinking about product like content or is that more just like a nice to have? Mm -hmm. Um, like when you, cause I'm thinking about, 
Uh, SparkToro has a free account. I'm fairly certain Zapier does. Um, I think about other tools. Well, actually, so I might be answering my question here, but I think about tools like Ahrefs as well. The Ahrefs team has always done a great job of like incorporating uh, their product and screenshots and features in there. But it seems like, you know, if you think about the definition that you gave of product-like content being content marketing for the purpose and use of users, then you want it to be for a lot of users, right? And to activate them and to get them to be to be paid users, or I guess, you know, more loyal paid users. Yeah, totally. And I, I think so too. I mean, I think as I've been thinking through the other self-service SaaS companies that have great products and or great content, a lot of them do have some kind of free offering like, like SparkToro does. Like for SparkToro, like we do offer, we do have an account where you get five free searches per month uh, and you get a sampling of a bunch of different kinds of results. And yeah, of course, it's better if you pay like in any SaaS tool, but you can still get value out of that, right? Like if you're searching for a given, um, a given, um, I want to go beyond niche. Like if you're searching for a job title that people in your audience have, you'll be able to get some interesting insights out of that. And that's how we want mm-hmm. it to be. Um, and yeah, and I do, I think to your point, I think Zapier does have a free account. Loom has a free account. I think most of them do because they want you to understand how to use the tools, how to use the product, and then go forth from there. And I think especially in the case of like Zapier, um, where they've created a whole category where if you're new to automation, you have no previous standard for which to measure against. So you kind of need the free tool to understand how to use it and how to get value out of it. Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of product-led content is sort of like for the purpose of uh, like activation from sort of like free to to paid or free to, you know, someone who's about to become a paid user or is, you know, eligible to become a paid user or for the purpose of retention. And you just, you know, you want to make the most, you want to help your users get the most of their paid account, you know, whatever that looks like, whatever tier that's on. Um, Are there any other like purposes or KPIs or like measurements for how you would sort of gauge, uh, you know, whether or not you're doing a good job of product-led content? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because I do think it's important to think beyond the customer, like, who, or yeah, beyond that, that paid customer. Um, something else I look at is, um, I'll say this on kind of the broadest way, shares. Like, who is sharing the given article or the given piece on social media, in their email newsletter, maybe linking to it from their own blog post. So that's kind of the earned, you know, the earned link thing. So, mm-hmm. so I look at shares on that kind of top line level because that's where I also see that we are being effective for people who are non-customers, right? So like using the cold outreach example, there were a lot of people who, who, who had said like, oh, I really love this guide. Maybe I'll check out SparkToro now. So it was mm-hmm. valuable to them when they didn't even know what SparkToro was or how to use our product. So that's kind of what I aspire to also, because I want our ideas and our tools and our strategies to be applicable to any marketer at any level. Yeah, just across the whole funnel, across acquisition and activation, retention, et cetera. What do you think about um, like help docs or like, I guess more standard, 
product content, you know, you have like a help center or some sort of like documentation. Um, you had mentioned before, like, for example, with something like Zapier or, uh, yeah, I, th I think it was Zapier saying like, oh, you might be in like an article and it might list, you know, zaps and then that might link out to some sort of like help doc that is very like instructional for how to go set up a zap to achieve this thing. It feels like product like content starts to, you know, blur the lines a little bit between like marketing content and product content. Um, what do you think about that? And like the use of documentation and how to sort of like fit them all together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big opportunity for SparkToro. Like, I think we should probably do more of that because I think as you think about, especially in spaces where your tool is sort of a, a category creator or at least trying to disrupt one of the incumbents, um, you kind of need to make it as easy as possible for people to use your, your product. Um, I think Zendesk does this really well too. They have a lot of, you know, great like customer support oriented content or content for the customer support niche. And then a lot of help articles that say, oh, by the way, here's how to do it using Zendesk. Um, mm. I think more SaaS tools or SaaS companies should probably be thinking about that because over time it makes it more economical for your customer support team, right? Where like you can start pointing people to help articles, um, and stuff like that. I think, yeah, I think it's probably also a big opportunity for a YouTube strategy too. Um, or if you can integrate like YouTube tutorials within your help articles, yeah. um, that should be really effective. Yeah, that'd be huge. It, yeah, it's just interesting because it's um it's sort of top of mind for me at least right now with Savvy Cal because we're, we're starting to create a lot more content and trying to span the gamut. We have a pretty like, uh, pretty heavy focus on SEO just for the purpose of organic traffic. And since there is like a very mature market in calendar scheduling and meeting scheduling mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but I'm noticing that, you know, some of our help docs are starting to, you know, rank a little bit, you know, there's like some like promise there or there's some sort of, um, which is a little bit surprising, right? Cause it's like, Oh, it's our, it's our help docs. So it's like, it's on a, it's on a subdomain. It's like its own thing, its own style, it feels very like, um, I mean, it looks like a help doc, right? It doesn't look like a blog post. It has a, it's just a completely different feel to it, but it's, you know, it's ranking for SEO and SEO. Like that's not really how most people would go and discover a help doc, you know? So I'm like, Oh, okay, well do we, <laughs> what do we do with that? Right. And like, is, you know, do you have some sort of like bridge or you do delist your help docs and like recreate them on the marketing side? And, I don't know. It's just like, there's a whole interesting paradigm of how you can start to think about product led content. And I think just SaaS in general, like changes, uh, like you have to invent new systems and new best practices from, um, like these old kind of things that we've adopted through under other industries and other business models. Totally. That's really interesting. Are, are you able to see what search terms people are using in order to get to those help articles? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty broadly. Um, and some of them again have really, really low search volume, but they are bringing in some traffic and or like at least for like the ones that are like really, really low, we know that they're still ranking like on the first page. So it's like, well, like people are finding this. <laughs> we don't know if they're like good or not, or if they're the right yeah. people we want to reach, but you know, what do we do with that? And, or is there something else we should be, we should be doing in order to maximize this opportunity?
Totally. I would think about like, is there a way you can kind of reverse engineer the search term or like back it up into a highly searched for term that is related to that and then figure out how to cross-link them in a way that is like organic to the content itself. Mm -hmm. Like I know that Mark Thomas did this at Dupol. Like I think I think they had I think he created content that was like how to do virtual all hands and then found a way to link that to one of Dupol's um uh landing pages and that was one of their highest converting pieces of content really wow yeah yeah stuff like this makes me think like there's a lot of untapped opportunity and it's probably like it's kind of like where it feels like this whole product-led content idea is headed a little bit it's like just more deeply embedding into the product into support into uh into freemium uh even i noticed I was logging into Sparktor the other day. I noticed like on the, the dashboard, basically, there's this whole big section full of content on just like ways to use Sparktor. There's one even that, that caught my eye. It was like, it was like five, five ways you can, or like five mistakes you can make using Sparktor or something like that. And I was like, what? Like that's so like unintuitive. I never would have thought about that, creating it or even like listing it on the dashboard of a product page. But because it's such a large part of the equation, um, it's a good use of that real estate. Totally, yeah. And we should, we should probably find more ways to, to get more out of that content. I, always, I sometimes tell Rand, like, I think maybe you create too much new content. We, should, we need to figure <laughs> out ways to, to redistribute what we have because it's good. <laughs> right. That's, yeah, it's a real thing. It's, um, uh, yeah, there, there's a whole portion. We, we can double click on that a little bit later. I wanted to also ask you about um, community-led marketing because I think it's in the similar vein of thinking about your user base and or just like fan base and audience as a whole as something that's not just you know a transactional relationship but that's more like hey we're all in this together we have a common goal we have commonalities we have common interests we're here to help each other um, what yeah just what are your thoughts on community-led marketing and how companies especially SaaS companies can leverage that as, as a part of their whole mix yeah. I mean, I'm really excited about community-led marketing because I think it's one of those areas of marketing that is seeing a new kind of resurgence, right? Like, I think it's old in the sense of, like, when you think about, like, luxury car companies, right? Like, like Porsche has had communities for forever and, like, yeah. Harley-Davidson, right? But... um there haven't there hasn't been a lot of modern day versions of that but now when you kind of think about it like what what notable communities are there it feels like there are so many right so like notion has their notion ambassadors program where you have people like marie poulin kehi like people who have their own independent businesses that are really really healthy and thriving for which they also happen to be notion ambassadors and be super users of the tool. Like, I think that's super interesting. I think we're also seeing it more in sort of highly regulated businesses like cannabis. So like mm -hmm. House of Wise is doing this really well where, you know, a founder, Amanda Getz, kind of, she led with community, right? Like, I think, but I think before, I think maybe like a couple months before she launched the company, she started the community and it was really just, and, you know, free, open to all, semi-private slack community semi-private meaning everything anyone's welcome to join but you still have to like click and sign up and all that stuff 
Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, kind of, you know, uh, engage with her community there to talk about things like stress and sleep and how you manage it with your day to day. And so when she launched House of Wise, the, you know, luxury, her luxury CBD brand, um, it became a natural fit for the community that she was already engaging with. And then it also kind of led very nicely to her micro affiliate program where everyone in the community, a wise woman or a wise man, um, has their own affiliate link. And, you know, and, and, and they very much embrace like, yeah, like go get paid, like use your, use your affiliate link um, when you share this with your friends. Um, so yeah, but when we think about it at SparkToro, I think for us, we don't have a specific digital community, right? Or like we don't have a formal community where it's, we don't have an ambassador program or like a Slack. But when we say community for us, it is our audience, like the people on our email list, the people who attend our office hours. Um, and we do have, you know, a good amount of repeat attendees who are coming to this twice a month office hours sort of workshop webinar, right? Where I think, you know, at this point we, we average about 600 attendees so it's 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 quite healthy um and we get it's great and we have people who are like oh i i I come to everyone like this is so much fun and they engage in the chat they ask q a we'll call them out in the chat we'll be like oh cool ronnie's here um Mm. and it's and so we so for us community is sort of like all the people around us and there isn't one formal structure but it just happens to take place in the form of these events so that's where I'm really interested in how um, all kinds of companies are engaging with communities. And you're doing this too with Swipe Files, right? Like how it's become this really nice and healthy community of pe- of marketers talking to each other where, you know, I think with Swipe Files at the outset, you were thinking of like awesome resource library for marketers. And then it kind of evolved into this community. And now it's this beautiful thing where you have a newsletter. You have um, you have a couple of newsletters. You do too much, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I have the too much content problem too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the community part is interesting also, I think, because I think a lot of people... Well, there's, there's two threads that has me thinking about this is one... Uh, I think a movement towards more like owned platforms, if you will, where mm-hmm. it's you have like a direct line of communication with your audience rather than uh, an ad or, you know, even like social media where you might be sort of subject to algorithms or censorship or other factors that might not have the same sort of like effect in your way to engage the community like you want to. And especially, I mean, I think about someone like Amanda with House of Lies where CBD is a very like sensitive industry and like i don't know i don't know all the nuances but like i'm pretty sure there's a lot of restrictions around how you advertise and where you advertise and sort of like what even like what marketing channels are really available to you i don't know really what you can um like it feels a little bit like you know fighting in a straitjacket you know and so you have to like okay how if i can't like go out to people how about i bring people to me and community is one of those places where you have that direct line of communication and it's, it's your place, right? Like no one can kick you out of your own house. Right. Totally. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge advantage in marketing because now you don't have to pay to speak every time. You don't have to, uh, to pray to the Twitter algorithms that you'll get surfaced, right? It's just, you post and it's there and people see it. Same thing with email, right? There's a fantastic, um, uh, outlet and, and, uh, and channel. One of the other threads is I think this like resurgence, maybe, some of it partly due to 
the whole like rise in crypto, Web3 and DeFi and NFTs and how um, I think, again, some of those same restrictions, but also maybe sort of like this more um, product-led focus where it's like, hey, if you're interested in this, join this Discord. And also this is going to be like the main place where we talk about what's new, what's what's coming up next. Like, how do you actually go and do this? It's like this, you know, club that you have to join in order to get all the content and meet all the people and do all the interesting things. And uh, I always look at crypto and, and web three as like, okay, they're cutting edge. Like where's the market moving, right? Like how, you know, in a couple of years, this is going to kind of like make its way in a more, in a bigger way to wherever I am, maybe it's SAS, which is still like pretty cutting edge, but you know, eventually like, how can I like see into the future and like learn from this beforehand and, community has been a huge part of everything that a lot of crypto projects do. Totally. I think that's such a great example that you brought up because there is so much about crypto and Web3. And, and I'm not I'm not an expert in it, so I don't know. Those are two kind of different things, right? <laughs> like it's blockchain a technology. Bit. Yeah, it's it, like, right. but it's they're all two different sort things. of like this umbrella of like, they're all yeah. interconnected and there's some words. It's a little bit semantics, but yeah. Yeah, but it's such a good example because... They, th- those are communities where there is absolutely shared terminology that you have to learn in order to essentially join the community. But at the same time, they're open to all. So the thing I find really interesting about that broader crypto community is how open and welcoming they are. At least this is my point of view. I, I, I really <laughs> think that the Web3 and crypto communities are very open and very welcoming. My hot take maybe is that I think any, I think, I think sure in any industry in any niche any whatever there are going to be like the bros that are off-putting to people sure but I don't think that's limited to crypto. I think for people who are who don't self-identify as being part of that community I think they are the ones who tend to say like ah crypto bro like no yeah, get yeah. out of here. But I think that there are a lot more people in the crypto community who are really welcoming who do want people to to join. And, and they want to teach them and learn more and, and like show, tell them the stuff they've been learning. Like, I feel like it's one of the easiest communities to join. Like, all you really have to do is tweet something related to Web3 or crypto and you're going to get people replying to you saying right. like, cool, join my Discord <laughs> or like, hey, I wrote this thing, like to check it out. And I think that's really, I think that's really kind of beautiful. Like, it's mm-hmm. cool to see how excited people are about this new space and to see how um, how much they want to share their learnings uh, and open it up to others. Yeah, and to see what they're doing right as well. Like I joined some discords and and also wrong, but like I joined some discords and I'm like, wow, I never would have thought about, you know, community stuff this way. Um, mm-hmm. And also just like seeing how they encourage it and sort of what type of content people post and how they structure you know, the, the spaces and the channels and like the hierarchy of how people engage and the cadence as well. Like I just noticed so many, um, like crypto people just love talking about crypto. And so it's like, okay, how can we channel that? And so that turns into Twitter spaces and that turns into these, you know, private discord. Um, I don't know like what the, I guess it's maybe a space also, but like discord also has this like whole like video chat, audio chat kind of functionality too. You can do it in a group chat and people just hang out there all day long. And it's fascinating thinking about like, how do you create a place people just want to hang out all day long and they've cracked the code, right? I don't think it's, it's not rocket science. There's this inherent sort of interest in crypto, but also like 
how can you just learn from that and absorb it and like yeah. take that magic in a bottle and try to transfer it over to what you want to do? Totally. Yeah. I mean, like I think people in that space are, they, you know, they're, they're, they really believe they are a part of a bigger mission in the world, right? They're at the forefront of changing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that's where the shared terminology comes into, comes big into play. Like once you learn those, the jargon all the, and all the words, then you feel like, oh, I'm in. Like, this is, yeah, these are my right. peeps. This is our language. This is how we talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're, you're the rebels, right? It's, it's this, whole, um, this whole culture that happens. You did mention um, SparkToro Office Hours, which is, like I said, the webinar series. Uh, you guys do it weekly, right? I really wanted to dive into that and, and just get, like, all the detail on it because I'm wondering, one, when you joined SparkToro, you know, what made you think that the office hours would be sort of, like, a promising experiment or idea or something to, you know, to invest more into, but also just like, what's it been like? Um, what have you learned about it? Like, how has it evolved? And like, you know, can you tie it back to, uh, sort of like positive, you know, indicators and results and, uh, and revenue even, I dare say, I don't know, attributions, uh, it's horrible these days, right? But like, not everything <laughs> needs to be so measurable and quantified, but if you can just talk a little bit about like how successful it's been. Yeah. So, um, when I, when I joined SparkToro and was, and was ramping up in like June, July, I think July, um, it was, uh, the office hours event was something that Rand already had interest in doing. He was like, I think we need some kind of series that is video where we can talk about this stuff. Um, and Rand had already been posting some videos on Twitter, like 90 seconds or two minutes of like how to do oh, something yeah. in SparkToro. And, but, you know, he was getting some good response there. But we were thinking about, like, well, how can we do more with this? And how can we, like, basically it became, like, how can we better educate our existing users, um, people who maybe want to convert but haven't done so yet, um, how can we best educate them and do this at scale, right? So we were already doing, you know, well, Rand was already doing blog posts, which, you know, perform well. And he, he already had created a bunch of help articles, helpful. Um, but I think the missing layer was sort of this like um, really engaging top of funnel, come here and bring your questions to this space kind of thing. Mm. So the vision that we had was that it would be um, partly top, would be topic driven, right? So we've done anything, everything from like amplifying your content to cold outreach to PR outreach. Um, and then having some kind of forum for people to ask their product questions, um, and then having it be in a welcome space. So from there, like, I think we were figuring out like, wait, which, which platform should we use for this? Like, you know, I think as a default, most people think of zoom, um, and that was, you know, on the table, but as, as I was pricing things out, I was seeing like. There were other tools that we could use, like uh, StreamYard, porting into YouTube Live. Uh, mm-hmm. We could do Crowdcast. Um, and as I looked at the different options, I ended up on Crowdcast because I liked that we could port that through YouTube Live if we ever wanted to. Uh, and then that was the original intention, by the way, that we were going to do this mm. is like a registration on Crowdcast or join YouTube Live. But where I struggled with this was in promoting it, I felt like it would just be weird to be like, hey, join our office hours, sign up here, 
or go to YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. then users, users might be like, so like, where do I go? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that I haven't cracked yet. It just stuck with Crowdcast. And that was, and I chose it because anyway, price point was, it was competitive with other offerings. We had, we could have our own registration pages, our own landing page for the SparkToro account in general. People can talk in the chat. We can easily monitor Q&A and you can shadow ban people in the chat. Uh, we haven't had to yet, but that was something mm. I kind of was nervous about because yeah. we do have a pretty massive database um, through Rand's built-in audience. And I just didn't, and I didn't know our community yet. So I wasn't sure, like, yeah. are we going to get anyone who like secretly hates us? Like, I don't know, <laughs> right? Um, fortunately, knock on wood, hasn't happened. Uh, but I wanted that to be an option for us. And then from there, you know, we we were distilling... We started out with just Rand doing the presentations and we were distilling the things that he was already saying into kind of newer content. So he would present on it, maybe I would react. He would back it up into a SparkToro demo. So it was sort of the like, here's how to do this really smart marketing thing. Oh, by the way, here's how you can do it with SparkToro. Um, And then allowing people to ask questions. Um, And so we get a nice mix of people asking about SparkToro specifically, like, oh, how can I do... How can I use lists in SparkToro or like just in general, like what do you think is a good way to reach out to new, a new journalist? Um, and then over time, as we've been tracking success, like we've been, we've been looking at things like signups. Um, signups have gone, like the first ever office hours we did had over a thousand people and it was wow. nuts. We were like, what? Um, we didn't expect that to be the same each time because it's every other week now. And it's also topic driven. So because we have an audience of people who are agencies, consultants, who service other industries, um, and also in-house marketers, there's going to be different kinds of content there. Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing registration kind of tied to um, certain audience types that we have. So that's one thing that we, we, we look at that. Um, we look at um, one metric for us of success is if we can create some derivative content from the event, like... Mm turning the cold outreach presentation into a blog post was a big win because it, then it was like, great, now we have this thing that lives on the website forever and it's like kind of paying dividends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we look at how, I mean, it is hard to attribute like how it, how things one-to-one positively affect ret- retention, but we do feel like retention has gotten better, you know, over the past couple of months, um, especially as we've been able to point people to more resources or even to say, like, if someone asks a question about how something works, we can say, like, hey, we're actually going to cover this topic in a couple of days. Like, mm. like, join us, please, all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that because I feel like um, something I've talked about with Ahrefs again before is, uh, like, if you're signed up for Ahrefs, they have so much content. Like, there's literally no excuse to not use Ahrefs. Like there's just so much out there, so much helpful content. And same thing I think now with SparkToro where it's like, like if you're not taking advantage of your account, like that's on you because all the instructions are right here, all the contents here, all the examples you need are there in front of you. Um, and so it removes a lot of the like, well, I'm not sure what to do or how to do this. Or, you know, I think especially because SparkToro is a newer tool as well, it's important because people don't have these like built-in assumptions about how something works or the use cases or applications, maybe like an SEO tool, right? Which is like very mature and very uh, well-known and very well-practiced. I also wanted to ask about repurposing because I was, while you were were saying that, I was thinking like, well, you know, do you you normally take the approach of repurposing an office hours into derivative blog posts 
or do you use blog posts as like starting points to create office hours sometimes? That's a good question. Uh, it's, it is both like Rand did a presentation or an office hours presentation on, um, amplifying your content. And that came from his blog post. I think it was back in May. That's like one of his most popular blog posts this year. Uh, yeah. And yeah. even then, I think it, I, don't, I think it was my idea. I think I was like, Hey, you should make this a presentation. And he was like, Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> it didn't occur to me. <laughs> um, and then for me, for me, like being newer to SparkToro, right, and creating less content, um, I started out with a cold outreach presentation because I needed to create content for a presentation. And then it became like, well, I, I went through all this trouble of creating these this this deck. I should turn it into a blog post. So mm -hmm. then it became like, oh, it, repurposing for us has become a way to just be more um, efficient about the content that we're already creating. Yeah. Yeah, and serving people's different needs and like how they consume that content as well, right? That way someone doesn't have, you know, want to go watch their video, they can read the blog post and vice versa, or even through someone like Twitter. Uh, and speaking of which, the cold email outreach uh, thread is amazing. It's fantastic. And I know it's garnered a lot of positive response. Maybe even one of your most popular piece of content on, on Twitter, or I assume also with SparkToro as well. Uh, could you give, I mean, you don't need to read it word for word, but like the high level bullet points, uh, just what it means to do good cold email outreach, especially from a marketing perspective, which I think is a new, you know, fresh angle that I really want to take. Yeah. So like in writing that, I mean, I, w I was thinking about cold outreach from that broadest sense of like when you're doing it, you know, as a kind of maybe a team of one, whether it's, it is for job hunting. And I kind of alluded this alluded to this at the beginning of our conversation when I talked about how I cold outreached a bunch of food startups because I wanted to yeah. work there. So like job hunting to sort of earned media, um, digital PR stuff to um, potentially getting like product demos in the calendar. So the way I think about it, I guess from the, I, I think about it like what is the smallest, best qualified list I can create to reach out to people? Because mm -hmm. I would rather reach out to 10 people and get 10 responses that are relevant to my needs then reach out to 30 people and get 10 responses, right? Like I, th I yeah. just think it's a better use of time to qualify everything up front and, to, and as a result, be able to refine your message and reach out to the most relevant people possible. So depending on what it is, like um, one of my starting points on the you know, broadest level tends to be a wealth front uh, successful or career launching companies it's an mm. annual list they do and it is career launching companies as defined by a certain type of i think it might be like annual recurring revenue or some kind of you know business growth um and what some of the biggest players are there i might start with that um as that kind of top line of like you know if i was if i wanted to do some like b2b outreach to get people to use my product i'd probably start at companies that are well funded or that are successful um but I guess to say that more broadly or more generically, I would say I would look at those sort of cluster sources first of like, where are the things that have sources or that link to other people? So it could be a roundup list. It could be someone's existing Twitter profile, right? Like your Twitter profile is probably a great starting point for a lot of people, right? Like if you are a wannabe marketer or a founder or entrepreneur, um, like I would look at the people that 
Corey follows <laughs> and then be mm. like, cool, like, who, like, what are the conversations that Corey's having like, publicly online? I might create some like Twitter lists or outreach lists based on that. Um, and then I would take a moment to, to step back and think about who am I to a stranger? Like, I, th- I think this is kind of a piece that a lot of people don't think about. It's Google yourself. <laughs> like, if someone were to look you up in the context of your outreach, does it make sense? You know, like if you had a weird title, like myself, marketing architect, like if someone were to Google that, they'd be like, ew, who, why is this person reaching out to me? If I were to do some cold outreach for marketing purposes, I might change my title to just like marketing <laughs> so that it at least is more intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think about that. And then for the, and then I would, thir- I guess third thing I would think about is how can I make this outreach least cold as possible? Like, how can I warm this yeah, up? And yeah. it would probably be like following, like making a Twitter list of, of the most relevant people and following along and engaging with their content just on an organic level. Like if I think something they say is interesting or if they ask a question like, oh, where can I find a, a really good scheduling tool? Then I would reply and be like, oh, check out SavvyCal. Like this is a great tool to use. Um, and like just truly like engage with them on a human level. So that when I eventually do reach out, like in a DM, it's less weird that I don't have to spend like two paragraphs explaining who I am, where it can mm-hmm. just be like, hey, we had some cool back and forth on scheduling tools. Thought you'd be really interested in, you know, this new feature that Savvy Cal launched or something kind of like that. Yeah. Um, if I, if yeah. I can just Those add a comment on that steps. really quick. Yeah. I feel yeah. like the making it as least cold as possible or like as warm as possible is, is so key. One of the things that's worked really well for us at SavvyCal has been proactively including uh, people that we want to collaborate with at some point in the future or earn a link from in the future or you know whatever it is, do some co-marketing together in the future, proactively including them in our content and then saying, Hey, we featured you here, by the way, or they'll just see it on social media and be like, oh, thanks for the shout out or thanks for the link or thanks for the mention. And now we've sort of, we've earned our way to an introduction and we've earned, you know, their attention and their respect of, oh, we should go and check out. And that way when I reach out later, I'm like, hey, you know, uh, thanks again for being awesome. Um, also appreciate, you know, the thanks or, you're, you know, you're welcome for this inclusion. Also, maybe there's something else we can do in the future. And it's just such an, like, I'm 10 for 10 on those, you know, I don't know what the number is, but like, that works every single time because really there's no way you're, you're really going to include someone that is irrelevant. And so by only including relevant sources in your content and then using that as an introduction, then you know, you're never going to have like a, a bad fit, right? It's always going to be a good fit there. Yeah. I love how you explain that. It's like permissionless co- collaboration, right? Yeah. Like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Where it's like, if you want to do some co-marketing with a brand that kind of shares your audience but is not a competitor, like why not just link to their stuff already when it's relevant to what you're doing? Um, yeah. And like everybody wins that way. Man, permissionless co-marketing. I'm gonna have to steal that one. That's a yeah. that's a good one. We I'm should... gonna swipe that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. We gotta make that a thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Let's uh, let's evangelize. <laughs> There's also yeah. um let's permissionless collaborate together. <laughs> that's right. Let's make it happen. Here's our, our case study. Here's uh, ground zero. The the other thing you mentioned, you know, with the Twitter list, I think just those like micro interactions, they really do go so far. In fact, fun fact, uh so Rand was the first guest on this podcast. And um when I reached out to him, 
I felt like, oh man, like Rand doesn't know who I am. Like I'm, it's gonna be so cold. Like there's no way he's gonna be my first guest. And he was like, oh hey Corey, like I seen you on Twitter, and like I was like, and then we hopped on the call. Finally, he said yes, and we hopped on the call. And I was like, hey Rand, like you know, how do you know me? Like where? He's like, oh I don't know. I just like I see your face, like my tweets, and like you respond to my stuff. And he's like, oh and didn't you? He's like, you responded to my a couple of my emails. And I was like, oh I like totally forgot about all those, but like. Yeah, it makes sense why you you know you responded now. Like, good on me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. And he notices it, and and that that's such a good example too, because like, you know, Rand has like four hundred fifty thousand Twitter followers, and like, I myself didn't, I didn't like. Well, you were smart to engage with him online like longer, and because I I didn't because I thought like, oh, he doesn't need to hear from me. He doesn't know mm. who I am. But like people notice, you know, even people like Rand who have huge followings, like if you are relevant, right, to the niche and like you contribute to the conversation, um, they, they know it. They, they know your face. They know your PFP. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it really is uh, a huge way. And so using something like a Twitter list where I've, one thing I've been doing is like curating this sort of like um, categories of people that I want to interact with or just be more intentional about it because you know, the algorithm doesn't feed everything as it can't. And so I have to be more intentional about that and just going through and like leaving a like, leaving a comment, um, going through and just like seeing the updates from people that I want to hear from and like trying to be intentional about that, even like connecting on LinkedIn and like creating these automations where I'm like just being more intentional about connecting with people. And then like my goal, cause like I hate cold outreach. I hate being like, Oh wow! Here my like here's like my really like vague pitch about something. It's like this should not be this way. Like I just want to know this person and then make it like a no brainer where it's not this awkward. I don't know. It just feels icky. Oh totally, totally. And I think when when you and I first got connected, it was essentially no, it wasn't. It was it was very warm outreach because you had tweeted about like is anyone interested in a community? And I yeah. replied to it. I was like yeah. I am. And then you followed up. Like right. I mean those are some things like saying it now it's like well duh of course that worked for each for for both of us but i think sometimes people don't realize that they should just join the public conversations Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that interaction is so key um one of the other things i wanted to ask you about was writing uh and and also in a similar vein twitter as well because twitter is a writing outlet and you've been very prolific especially in the last several months um and it's funny because, you know, when we first started the uh, the Twitter growth challenge, I think maybe back in May it was, uh, I think maybe you were the only, one of the few people to set an ambitious goal and like smash it. <laughs> I mean, like far <laughs> surpassing me, like way far surpassing many other people. Um, but, and I know a lot of that is due to writing and the function of learning how to to craft tweets, learning how to think effectively learning how to create content, but content has been a big part of your background. But I'm just wondering if you can riff a little bit on your thoughts recently on, on writing and, and I think like creating content, uh, for these platforms like Twitter, like your newsletter, like your blog, like spark to our office hours. Yeah. So the thing that I will say that is going to sound super obvious, but I can back it up is to, when it comes to writing online, just get started. Like, don't get too caught up in which format you use, which website you use, which provider or like managed host you use. Like, yeah, like I think those things matter on a technical level, but at the end of the day, if it's not something you can keep up with, it's not gonna work. Um, the other thing I'll say is to not get too caught up in 
rented versus owned land. Like, I think people say the, the, the common knowledge, right, is own your own website, like have your own blog, direct people to your blog so you can own the traffic. On a, on a high level, like, I mean, I overall agree with that. And I have a personal website. And to some extent, I am doing that. But I think people get so caught up in making sure they're doing all the things right, that it doesn't it doesn't allow them to build momentum in the channels for which people already are. Ah, so yeah, that's a good so one. I think I think, you know, the the person who has been best at this is Sahil Bloom, right? Like, he that guy has like 300,000 followers, which he has amassed in I think just a couple years. But the thing that I'll call out here is he, I think, was the first person to really treat Twitter and Twitter threads as a blog. Like he hasn't had, I think he has a personal website now, but I don't even think he has a blog on it. Like his blog is Twitter threads. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that, like he, he amassed over, I think over 200,000 followers before he even launched his Substack. So, I mean, that's kind of one good example of like someone who has played on rented land for a long time. But then once he, once he launched his own things, it made those own things a lot easier where like when he launched a Substack, he probably launched it to like over 10,000 subscribers because he already had built such a strong following. So I think that's a great way to think about some of this stuff. And it's how I've kind of shifted my mindset to that too. Like hmm. I, I started my personal site last year. So like July, August, 2020, did a couple blog posts there. They're still there, um, but didn't have any intention behind how I would drive traffic to it, which was fine. And I still kind of don't because I, I just see it as a place to put my stuff. <laughs> That's how I look at it, not as a, an SEO play. Um, and then along the way, I started my ConvertKit newsletter. And that was something I launched in February because I launched it with um, upon completion of uh, Rite of Passage, David Perel's writing course. Oh, yeah. um, and then as I got into your Twitter growth challenge, I started growing my audience there. Then I was using the momentum there to, you know, to, well, I was kicking off the momentum with writing Twitter threads that were um, doing, that were performing well, and then continuing that momentum with continuing to publish with these Twitter threads. Um, and then I, I think for my newsletter, I, I just pinged people I knew and was like, Hey, do you want to join? Um, so grew it just very manually. But like for six months, didn't really promote it. It just was like, it's there. And like I had the review, uh, the review convert kit Zapier hook thing set up on yeah. my profile. Yeah. So you could see if you went to my profile and I would get a couple signups there. Um, and so I would say like by October, I had maybe like not many subscribers. I want to say like 750. So like not, 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 it's not nothing, but like, you know, it's not a huge list. But since... And it's only the past couple of weeks that I've been more intentional about plugging the newsletter because now I felt more comfortable with like, okay, I've built some kind of affinity on Twitter. I've been publishing for a while. So I feel pretty good that this is not terrible content because I've kind of worked that muscle and practiced at it. So when I started plugging it, I felt less self-conscious about it, I would say, but it's grown a lot faster because now uh, I just hit a thousand subscribers and it's only been a couple of weeks of actively promoting it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah I love that. Yeah, the um, the just get started. I think it's like you said. It's it's very underrated. I've experienced this myself, where 
even for swipe files, I like over overthink a lot of the content and that just like basically, I don't know, just sort of like floundered around for a while, just like flailing, you know, let's try a little bit over here. Let's try a little bit over here. Let's try over there. And then finally in August, I was just like, I just need to start writing and just, just get it out there. And in August, I think I, I like created over a hundred like newsletter editions across tiny marketing ideas and then across like the evergreen newsletter, which is growing and adding more content to that as well. I think there's, there's like 45 editions there and then there's 75 or 80 tiny marketing ideas. And it just felt so good to just be like, all right, I'm just going to get it on paper. I'm just going to get it out there. I can always change it later. It's not even public, right? So it's like, it's in someone's inbox. Like there's no reason to be embarrassed about it. And then the act of just like, just publishing, just being prolific, um, really, really helps. And I think the same thing for Twitter too. Like you start to, I never really was intentional about growing my Twitter until I was. And then I felt like, Oh, I like froze. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to just really let go of that and just feel free to just get stuff out there. Just try it. Just, um, but you're, you know, it's like brain dumping is, I don't know. It's like a weird, a weird word, but it's, it's very accurate for like what you should be doing regularly. Totally. Yeah. And you should turn more of your tiny marketing ideas into Twitter threads. People yes, would, or even just stitch them together and like here are eight things you can do, like that take you five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> people I would really should. That. I really should. There's a whole yeah, a whole bunch of. And that's the nice thing too. Now that you have this content, now you can repurpose it, and I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing now with Sparktoro, with a personal blog, totally. with a newsletter, and you can all like weave it together. Totally. Yeah. The more you do, the more, the easier it gets to kind of stitch things together, call back to past content. Like it, it does get easier as you yeah. spin the flywheel. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, starting to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your personal swipe file uh, into some marketing examples, campaigns, landing pages, ads, emails that you think are worthy of saving. Um, are there a few of your favorites or more recent ones that you've been studying uh, or added to your swipe file that you could talk through? Yeah. So over at SparkToro, we are considering redoing our homepage and our product page. So I've been looking at a lot of landing pages and I've been looking at a lot of pages um, in the self-service SaaS space because it's more comparable to what we do. And so I've been really interested in, so I'll call it three. Uh, first one, let's go ahead and get out of the way. Uh, Savvy Cal. <laughs> I, I was really interested in Savvy Cal one, because I know that you worked on the landing page or the homepage for it. Um, but also, uh, I wanted to see the how a company, a, a new-ish brand um, in a space that is actually pretty mature, how you go about the messaging, hmm. right? Like, I don't, you don't have to explain what a calendar is, right? Or what scheduling is. So right. I was really interested to see how you approach this uh, more informed or mature audience. That was really interesting to me. The second one I will call out is Zapier, right? Zapier created the category of automation tools that help other tools talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they have a competitor, right? Or if they do, I've never heard of them. Um, so, and if that's also something where if you don't know what automation is or what that is, then you would have no idea what Zapier is. So I was very curious to see how they message that, how they convey that, what elements of their of their offering they weave into the homepage to convey that value. And then the third one is Loom. So Loom, you know, for um, like they help do videos at scale. Um, they have a, f a free offering 
right? Yeah, you can have a free yep. Loom account. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it's better if you upgrade to a paid one. But I've gotten a lot of value out of their free account. So was curious about how they messaged, you know, some of that stuff um, and, and kind of the hierarchy of content and stuff. So that has been really interesting to see. Um, maybe last thing I'll kind of fourth ish thing I'll plug here too is yeah. um, I, I got some of this, some of this, some of these ideas from Demand Curve's new um, uh, landing page teardown section on their site. Mm. So they, they have some really great teardowns too on effective home pages. So I've been looking at that. Um, That's awesome. And yeah, so overall have gotten great inspiration in terms of straightforward messaging. So how Savvy Cal focuses on like, uh, okay, you already know what calendars are, what scheduling is. The thing that we are address that we are addressing on this homepage is a better experience for someone who already knows how to do these things. So that was really interesting to me. And I, I was thinking about that through the lens of, okay, Sparktoro is a tool for marketers who already know how to market. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. So what, how do we make that experience easier for them? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I'll be curious to see what you guys come up with. Um, it's like an interesting, just my two cents on it. It's like an interesting blend of like, what's like the purpose of the landing page. And even for some tools like Cal or, um, like Savvy Cal, I mean, previously like Calendly, um, Loom or like a zip message, uh, like very like product led growth focused companies where it's very like user centric and there's a viral uh, component to it. Like sometimes people never come to the landing page, right? So like the landing page, like specifically is supposed to convert people who have like never been there before. And like, that's like the whole goal of it. Right. And then you have some that are like Zapier where like there's like no viral coefficient at all. And like, it's a lot of mm -hmm. explaining from first principles, like what is this and what's the value and how do you think about this? So, even even within those like categories of like self serve SaaS, like there's so many different purposes of the landing page, which which is interesting. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. That's really that's really going to help me. Thank you for saying. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, take it with a grain of salt. Like SavvyCal, we're not nearly near the rival coefficient of Calendly, um, largely because actually SavvyCal doesn't really have like a true freemium offering yet. Um, but you think about something like Loom, and like I, I couldn't tell you if I've even been to Loom's homepage <laughs> because yeah. the way I signed up was someone else sent me a video a long, a long time ago, and then I signed up, and then I recorded a video, and it was like fairly straightforward, and like I never went to the homepage, I don't think ever, and uh, but obviously that's not true of everyone. No, that's a good point because I didn't either. I just I I looked up Loom Loom's ho homepage because I use the product. Mm -hmm. But yeah, when I use a product, I think I just went straight to like, oh, I'm just going to sign up because it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I want to record video. <laughs> give me, yeah. I mean, give me or uh, take my money. Yeah. Um, last question for you. When I say everything is marketing, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? Oh, for everything is marketing. I feel like, you know, what comes to mind is obviously I have a bias here. Everything is content. Because when you think about content as like, you know, the traditional sense, your blog, that's that's true. But content is also all your events. It's also your ads, right? Like the way you convey um, the value of your product. It's also your community. And it can also be your users, right? The, the content or the things that your users are saying about you is also content. So 
when you say everything is marketing, I also think everything is content. I love it. Amanda, thanks so much for coming to the show and sharing with me today. Best of luck to you and to Spartoro and look forward to uh, following along everything else that you do Yay. in your career and journey. Yeah, thank you for having me, Corey. This was so fun. And I'm glad that I'm glad that I waited a couple months to take you up on your offer to join. Cause it's me so as well. Fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah. amazing stories, amazing content. It was all, it was great. So thanks so much. Thanks again to Amanda for coming on the show and make sure to check out SparkToro and Amanda's super fun newsletter, The Menu. And as always, if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank her for sharing everything she did today and let her know what you learned as well. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways from our conversation. Let's talk again about product-led content. As Amanda said, product-led content is about creating content for customers and users specifically. And as we've seen the paradigm shift in SaaS from sales-led to product-led in so many categories, we need to also adjust our content marketing strategy. Product-led content puts a focus on content derivative of product use cases and features that increases product adoption, usage, and retention. Number two, permissionless co-marketing. I love this phrase, and I'm really going to hammer on this going forward. Permissionless co-marketing is about having a give-first mentality to collaborating with other people and companies by linking to them, featuring them in your content, giving generous shout outs, interviewing stakeholders, making connections, you will build goodwill that can be easily transferred into more official co-marketing campaigns and ultimately long-term relationships. So essentially, instead of asking first and begging for links or some sort of campaign or swap, give first and then leverage that as a way to introduce yourself and build a long-term relationship. And finally, leverage unfair advantages. Amanda talked about how they were brainstorming marketing ideas for SparkToro, and they were trying to think of ways to leverage their huge audience from Rand. And for SparkToro, acquisition is not the key variable, activation is. So their Office Hours series is simply a way to realize the potential of the audience that Rand has built up, which is a huge unfair advantage. If they were to do more traditional, quote unquote, marketing campaigns, they'd be competing with everyone else. But this way, with Office Hours, no one can compete with them. They are in a league of their own, leveraging their unfair advantage. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.